Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. And we're going to look at the model for spiritual unity. The model for spiritual unity. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have given us a hunger and thirst for your righteousness. God, we want to drink deeply from the living word that transforms and changes us. And that's our desire today, to to be changed and transformed before we leave this place today. Speak to each heart. Empower each life to live as Christ lived. So we commit this day, our lives, anew to you again in the precious, most wonderful, mighty name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. Well, look in your text with me. It begins in verse 5, and it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See, the idea here is that we should constantly have this same mind in us that was in Christ. And that's the life, the spirit-filled life that we're called to. I think we see that in a man named Joseph Damien, who was a 19th century missionary who ministered to the people with leprosy on the island of Molokai. And those suffering grew to love him, and they revered the sacrificial life that he lived out before them. And it was one morning before Damien was to lead the daily worship that he was pouring some hot water into a cup when the water swirled out and fell onto his bare foot. It took him a moment to realize that he had not felt any sensation. Gripped by the sudden fear of what this could mean, he poured more water on the same spot, but no feeling whatsoever. Damien immediately knew what had happened, and as he walked tearfully to deliver his sermon, no one at this point noticed the difference in his opening line. He normally would have began every sermon with these words, my fellow believers, but this morning he began with the words, my fellow lepers. In a greater measure, Jesus came into this world knowing what it would cost him. And he bore in his pure being the marks of evil, that we might be made pure. For this I came into the world. Jesus' words from John 18, 37. Stop and think. God, who is sovereign, cannot be humbled because there's no one outside him or nothing outside of him that could force him into that situation. Yet Christ chose 
to give his life as a ransom for all that would receive him. This is the sacrificial mind. This is the mind that you and I are to call. In fact, if you look in your text in verse 5 and you see that word attitude, underline it right next to it, the word mind. Because that's what we're talking about, this sacrificial mind that esteems others higher than itself. Well, believers can never really duplicate the precise ministry of, of, of Christ Jesus. We can, on the other hand, display the same mind or attitude. Each believer is called to follow Jesus in his uncomparable example, but of a humble self-denial, self-giving, self-sacrifice, and selfless love. While the exhortation seems so impossible, yet listen to the very words of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says this, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, and for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you hear the heart of Jesus? He's calling us. Come to me, weary and heavy laden. Take the yoke from him, because he's gentle and humble. And he's the one that will teach us. He's the one who will instruct us, the one who will empower us through his Holy Spirit. But sadly, we can find ourselves going through this life blinded by our own agendas. Luke 22 reminds us of, of Jesus' disciples. If you remember, they were arguing, they were disputing who was the greatest. Jesus had already told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things, but their agenda was blinding them. They were insensitive to him because they were caught up in their own agenda. And we can find ourselves in that same way, caught up in our own agendas and really insensitive to what God's calling us to do. It wasn't long after this that Jesus would wash the feet of the disciples, modeling again that, that life of a servant, that life that you and I are called to. Let me read from John 13. Notice what it says. So when he had washed their feet, taking his garment, he reclined at the table again, and he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you example that you also should do as I did to you. And truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This was a demonstration of humility. This so clearly exemplifies the attitude or that mind that was in Christ Jesus. 
Well, let's look first at, at really the exalted position of Jesus Christ. Although he existed, notice, in the form of God in verse 6. And this speaks simply of his preeminence. He was preexistent and preeminent before creation. And John 1, 1 reminds us of that because it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the Eternal One. Verse 3 goes on to describe that he was the creator. In verse 4, he was the light unto the world. And verse 14 goes on to say, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another translation says, Not that he just dwelt, but he tabernacled. And that's what you and I are doing, tabernacling in this world. This body is a tent and our home is in heaven. We are pilgrims. We're being prepared for what God has for you and me in heaven. John eight fifty eight, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Again, declaring he's the eternal one, the one who is at the burning bush. And the one who was at the burning bush and gave those seven I am's in the book of John says to you, he is the I am. All that you ever need. He declared that he was the bread of life. And who comes to me shall never hunger. And that he was the light unto the world. He says, I am the door, the way of salvation. I am the true vine that we need to stay connected to. And I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And we know that he laid down his life. And we know that there's no greater love than one who would lay down his life for his brother. In John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And finally, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The one that stood at that burning bush, while we could not see him, but in that flame, he is declaring that he is the same one, the eternal one, the creator, the light unto the world, the one who is the way, the truth, the life. Colossians reminds us this same one we're talking about. He is the image of the invisible God. He would say again to his disciples, to Thomas, when, when you have seen me, you have seen God. The very nature, the very character, the compassion, the love, the mercy, the grace. He is God the I am, the eternal one. Well, if we want to follow this model, we need to, to look at him. This is God who came to become man and to live as a man and we're to follow his example. Well, look with me in verse 6 again. We see the first step, do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, first of all, that word equality defines things that are that are exactly the same in size and quality and 
and character and number. He was God. He was equal to God. And he constantly claimed to be God during his ministry. While Christ had rights and privileges and the honors of, of deity, which he was worthy of and could never be disqualified, he considered these things, being equal to God and, and all these benefits, as something to be, he considered it not as something to be taken self-advantage of or something to further his own means. He lays these aside. He wasn't going to use it to grasp or seize as the other gods, the other lords whom the Philistines had previously known. The normal expectation of a god or lordly power is to seize, to grasp, to take all these things. But the contrary, Christ expressed his equality with God when he emptied himself. when he decided to be the good shepherd. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life, and that's what you and I need to do, is lay down our lives. First for the king, for God himself, and for those around us. Look at verse 7. Notice the word, he emptied himself. It's where we get a theological word called kenosis. It's the doctrine of self-emptying of the incarnation. See, he was God in the flesh. That's what the incarnation means. He was incarnated, become flesh. In fact, he is love incarnate. Well, this was the self-renunciation. He did not empty himself of his deity, nor exchange his deity for humanity. He simply added humanity to his deity. The word emptied in the the Greek points to the divesting of his self-interest, but not of his deity. In other words, Christ did not hesitate to set aside his self-will, his use of the deity, when he became a man. Though his humanity was genuine, he was still different from other humans in the fact that he was sinless. Note in some ways he renounced or set aside those privileges. That's what I want to point to. The first thing he did was set aside his heavenly glory. While on earth, he gave up his glory of a face-to-face relationship with God. That continuous outward display and personal enjoyment of that glory, he no longer enjoyed. In fact, in John seventeen five, it says, Now the Father, now Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He set aside his independent authority. It was during this incarnation of Christ, he completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. Matthew 26, 39 makes it clear, and he went a little while beyond himself and fell on his face and prayed and saying, My Father, if it's possible... 
Let this cup pass for me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And we have to, too, lay our will aside to do the will of the Father who has sent us. He laid aside his divine privileges, or he set aside voluntarily display of his divine attributes and submitted himself really to the Spirit's direction. Matthew twenty four thirty six says this, But the day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Well, he was God, God in the flesh. He was all-knowing. He laid aside. He didn't know always his next exact move, but he waited to be led by the Spirit. He lived in his humanity. He lived as a man that we might learn to follow, too, the Spirit's leading. If we want to honor God, we need to be listening to the Lord, to the Spirit. He laid aside his eternal riches, too. While on earth, he was poor. <laughs> he owned little, if, if nothing. Second Corinthians 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he, for your sake, became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He laid aside his favorable relationship with God. He felt the Father's wrath for human sin while on the cross. Do you remember those three hours of darkness when he was on the cross? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was during that period of time, every person's sin from the beginning of creation until the final white throne judgment, every sin was laid upon his back. He bore them. And when he was bearing this sin, it was then he was separated from the Father for the very first time in eternity all because he loved you and he loved me. He took the form of a, a bond servant. Now that nature form of a, a servant, a bond servant, Paul uses the word nature, indicating the exact essence. Dulos is the word for servant, which means slave. But think about it. Jesus, however, became no man's slave, but he did become a bondservant of the Father. He came into this world to minister, to give, to serve, to save. And like Jesus, Christians are not here to be served, but we are to serve. Serve one another in love. Serve the unworthy. Bring them the truth. The truth will set them free. Think about it, after laying aside all the privileges that were rightly his as the king of the universe, he took the form of a bondservant, made in the likeness of man, to become not just an ordinary Jewish baby, but bound for the cross, 
to die for your sins and my sins. Romans 8.29 reminds us that, that I do all things that are pleasing to him. Two things that Jesus did. It doesn't show it in the verse both, but here he did it to please the Father, but he did it because he loved you and he loved me. We too are bond servants. We too have laid our rights aside. We too have a mission and that's called to bring the gospel to a lost world. Notice again, there's one more thing I want to call your attention to here is being made in the likeness of man. The statement goes on to make it clear that Christ became simply a part of humanity being made in that human likeness. Now, the word likeness stresses similarity. And it's important to understand that leaves room for differences. Because Christ became a literal man, he had those basic human needs. He hungered, he thirsted, he tired, he grieved, he had weakness. Yet at the same time, there was an absence of sinful nature and the consequences of that. Luke adds another thing that Jesus grew in wisdom, favor with God and man. And he learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. You know what's interesting here is in Hebrews 2.17, therefore he was made like his brethren in all things so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And boy, we can rejoice and draw and be thankful on that. But when I think, if I'm to be like Christ, I will be growing in that love and grace of Jesus Christ. And when I go through difficult times and struggle with sin, go through it with others, it should make us, again, merciful and a faithful priest unto the Lord and to one another. Look with me. Another thing, he was found in the appearance of a man. And that's what Romans is talking about in Romans 8.3. He says, for what the law could not do, the weakness is as it was through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness, again, of sinful flesh. It's an offering for sin. And he condemned the sin in the flesh. We have to recognize that why I have this body and you have this body, this is not our permanent dwelling. We will one day receive a glorified body. And we are to go through this life as a bondservant, serving one another. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And we are to be living for him and not ourselves. Verse 8 brings in another point. He humbled himself. Let me read Mark 14. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus. Do you not answer? What is this, the, these things that you're 
you're testifying against you. But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in with clouds in heaven. Now, let me call your attention. He humbled himself. The thing I want to call your attention to is here, number one, Jesus didn't ever need to defend himself. He didn't need to revile them. He didn't need to attack them. He just entrusted himself to the to God the Father. That's what we do is we when we humble ourselves, we don't think about ourselves, okay? And we really are entrusting ourselves into the hands of God. And this is something I've learned for years, you know, that that's so important is that we don't need to vindicate ourselves. In the end, God will vindicate us. In the end, the faithful servant will hear the words, good and faithful servant. Sadly, sometimes we're so worried about, about what others think and say. We're so fickle to begin with. Or we want to, to show them who we are or win the point. Look at First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, while being reviled. He didn't revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He never exalted himself. And everything that Jesus did was always for others. First and foremost thing, though, was to do the will of the Father. He borrowed a boat. He used it as a pulpit. He borrowed a little boy's lunch, and he fed thousands. He even borrowed a tomb, and he was buried in it. Never once did he do a miracle for his own benefit or his own comfort. Christ humbled himself. It goes on in verse 8, and being obedient to the point of death. This obedience led to Jesus complying with the Father to do what seemed so unthinkable to die for the sins of humanity. There was even further humiliation in his death because he didn't die an ordinary death. No, it was the death of a, a crucifixion. It was the cruelest and most excruciating, most degrading form of death ever devised. It was the death for the criminal. Yet he was the savior of the world. Galatians 3 reminds us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree, and that tree refers to the cross. Also in verse 8, we see even the death of the cross. He could have been beheaded, such as John the Baptist was, or stoned or hanged, but no, he was destined 
not just for any kind of death, but the death of the cross. Because cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. He took your curse, my curse, upon him. This was God's perfect plan. The crucifixion of his son, not only acceptable, but it was mandatory. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Paul says in Galatians, he says, having become the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Peter declared, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. See, a key thought, I think, is Leviticus seventeen eleven. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you upon the altar. Make atonement for the souls. For it is the blood by which life makes atonement. See, Jesus' own blood, Messiah blood, would be shed for you and me. And to go to the cross meant that he had to humble himself. Let me close with one more illustration. A former missionary told of a story of two rugged, powerful mountain goats who met on a narrow pathway joining two mountain ridges. One side was a a chasm of a thousand feet deep, on the other a steep cliff rising straight up. So narrow was the trail that was no room to turn around. The goats could not back up without falling off. What would they do? And finally, instead of fighting for the right to pass, one of the goats knelt down, made himself as flat as possible. The other goat then walked over him, and they both proceeded safely. In a sense, this is what Jesus Christ did for us when he left his heavenly glory, came to this earth to die for our sins. He saw his trap between sin and God's righteousness with no way to help ourselves. He humbled himself by giving up his right to use his own divine power. He came in the likeness of men, took the form of a bondservant. Then by dying a, a sinful, dying for sinful mankind, he let us walk over him so that we could experience forgiveness and receive eternal life. See, the model for spiritual unity is, is having that mind of Christ. It's simply demonstrated in humility. The question is, will you humble yourself in the sight of God and know that he will exalt you in due time? Father, thank you for your word, your precious word, your precious word that is life. And we pray today that 
these words, these thoughts, this mind of Christ will become flesh in us. Oh Lord, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And we want to say we love you. And we thank you that you will finish the work in us one day. And all God's people said, Amen.